Remind me, dear Lord. Song of invitation will be almost persuaded. Good evening. Good evening. Having a few technical difficulties up here with our clicker. Got to put the pieces back together before we begin. Uh, but good to be together tonight and appreciate this time that we've been able to spend in worship, not only tonight, but also this morning. I appreciate you and appreciate you being an active participant in serving God today, worshiping God today. I hope that it's encouraging for all of us that we'll be able to go out and live for Jesus this week. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark tonight, specifically continuing our study of the crucifixion narrative. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, if you have your copy of God's Word, love for you to turn with me there. And for the second week, we're going to study in verses 24 through 41. So if you have your Bible, join me in Mark chapter 15. And in just a few minutes, we're going to go back to this passage in verses 24 through 41. Whenever you stand at the Statue of Liberty in New York City, you're able to learn something about freedom. You're able to learn something about liberty. It's right there in the title. Whenever you stand at the MLK Memorial in Washington, D.C., you're able to learn something about civil rights. Whenever you stand at the Vietnam Veteran Memorial in Washington, D.C., and you read all of those names, you're able to learn something about freedom, and you're able to learn something about sacrifice. Whenever you stand at the Grand Ole Opry, which I don't know about you, but I'm never going to see the Grand Ole Opry from this perspective. There's a reason that I preach, and it's because people don't want me to lead singing. Okay, I don't think I'm ever going to be asked to be on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry. But whenever you go to the Grand Ole Opry, you're able to learn something about country music. In a similar way, in a much greater way, whenever we stand at the foot of Jesus' cross, we're able to learn some amazing lessons that draw us closer to Him. These are lessons that help us to love Him more. These are lessons that help us to appreciate Him more. These are lessons that help us to live more faithfully and more dedicated to Him on a daily basis. As we said, this is our second week thinking about lessons from the cross, our second and final week. Last week, we looked at three lessons that we can learn from the crucifixion of Jesus. Just to review those for a second, when we looked at Mark chapter 15, verses 24 through 32, we talked about how we can learn a lesson about forgiveness. Remember how Jesus looks down on those who were mocking Him, those who were making fun of Him, those who had put Him up on the cross, and He says what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We learn a lesson about forgiveness. And then in verse 33, we talked about how we can learn a lesson about judgment. You see that three-hour period of darkness, and perhaps darkness symbolizing God's judgment against sin, how we can be set free from our sin. And then in 34 through 36, we talked about lessons that we can learn concerning feelings of abandonment. Remember, Jesus quotes the words of Psalm 22 and verse number 1 as he hangs on the cross, My God, my God, why have you 
forsaken me. In that moment, identifying himself as the ultimate fulfillment of those words and demonstrating that he felt forsaken. He felt abandoned as he walked through all of that pain and walked through all of that difficulty. Those are the three lessons that we've talked about so far. Tonight, I want us to add three more lessons to that. When we stand at the foot of Jesus' cross, there are some amazing lessons that we can learn. I think the fourth one that we need to mention as we look at verse number 37 is a lesson about trust. Whenever you come to Mark chapter 15 and verse number 37, at this point, as we've talked about over the last few weeks, Jesus has been mocked. He's been made fun of, beaten, spit on. Jesus has been scourged. We talked about the details of that a couple of weeks ago. At this point, Jesus has been hung on the cross and he's remained there for about six hours. When you look at Mark 15 and verse number 37, the Bible says that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last breath. We mentioned a few weeks ago the cause of death whenever it came to crucifixion was what? Suffocation. You had to struggle for every single breath that you took. And so as Jesus takes his final breath, Mark tells us in chapter 15 and verse 37 that he utters a loud cry. Have you ever wondered what Jesus said in that loud cry? Have you under, ever wondered what the words were that came out of his mouth? If you were in his situation, what would you say? You've been through all of this difficulty and all of this pain. You've shed your blood. You've been beaten and mocked and spit on and scourged. You've been hanging on the cross, suffering and struggling for every single breath over the last six hours. What would be the last words that you would speak? Maybe you would look down from the cross and you would want to get even with those who were continuing to mock you and make fun of you as they walked by the cross. Maybe you would want to speak to your friends and your relatives who were standing at the foot of the cross to tell them goodbye, to tell them how much you love them. Maybe you would find yourself in so much pain that you couldn't really say anything. You couldn't get any words to come out. Have you ever been in a situation where it was so painful that you just you were speechless? You couldn't say anything. Whenever Jesus hangs on the cross, he breathes his last breath and gives out one last cry. Mark doesn't tell us what the words are, but whenever we go to Luke's account in Luke chapter 23 and verse 46, he does. The Bible says that Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Notice those words from Jesus. Father, into your hands I commit. Or you could also translate that saying, into your hands I am entrusting my spirit. Jesus looks at the, the, the Father to say, I'm placing my life in your hands. Whenever my sister turned 16 years old, I remember riding with her for the first time in the car. I jumped in the passenger seat, and the first thing that I said, maybe you've lived this, the, the, the first thing that I said was, I'm putting my life in your hands, so you better be careful. I'm still here today, so I guess that my trust wasn't too misplaced. We survived it. We only ran one stop sign and almost got hit, but that word almost, I think, is the key word there. In a similar way, again, a much greater way, as we said at the beginning, Jesus Christ, in his final breath, looks at the Father and says, I'm trusting you. 
I'm placing my life into your hands. It's into your hands that I commit my spirit. Just like we said with the question that Jesus asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are not words that Jesus came up with. Jesus didn't string this sentence together on his own. This is actually a quotation of David from Psalm chapter 31 and verse number 5, where David says, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. When you look at the context of Psalm 31 and you read that psalm in its entirety, you find that David is going through a really rough patch in his life. For instance, go to verses 9 through 13 for just a second and notice the difficulty that he's enduring. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. Verse 12, I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme together against me. Would you say that David is going through a pretty rough patch? Would you say that David is going through a difficult moment? Would you say that pain is a part of his life in Psalm 31? How does he respond to it? Psalm chapter 31 and verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. In the midst of the difficulty that David was dealing with, he looks up to God to say, I'm putting my spirit into your hands. I'm entrusting my spirit into your hands. I'm placing my life in your hands because he recognizes there's not a better place that you can put your life or your soul than in the hands of the Heavenly Father. Jesus identifies himself as the ultimate fulfillment of those words. As, as Jesus finds himself in the midst of difficulty, as Jesus finds himself in the midst of pain and hardship, he says the same thing. I'm trusting you. I'm entrusting my soul to you. I'm placing my life. I'm placing my spirit into your hands. In that, we learn a lesson about trust. As we go through our lives on a daily and, and weekly, on a monthly basis, where do we place our lives? Where do we place our souls, especially when we deal with difficulties, whenever we deal with trials, whenever we find ourselves in the midst of painful circumstances? There's so many who take their life into their own hands. Well, if I'm not going to take care of myself, then there's not anybody who's going to take care of me. So I need to put my life in my hands, live based on my strength, live based on my power. Or maybe sometimes people put their lives into the hands of their friends, their family members, or different organizations. As Christians, we recognize the same thing that David recognized. We recognize the same thing that Jesus Christ stated in his final breath. There's not a better place to place our lives than in the hands of our Heavenly Father. To trust in Him, especially in the midst of difficulty. To look up at God and to pray the same prayer that Jesus prayed. Father, it's into Your hands that I am committing and entrusting my spirit. This is a lesson about trust. Do you trust God with all of your heart? Proverbs chapter 3 and verse number 5. The fifth lesson that I think we can learn from the cross, whenever we look at Mark's account of the crucifixion, 
in verse number 38, I think we can learn a lesson about access to God. Whenever you look at the temple in the city of Jerusalem, there was a curtain, a veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Notice how God gives commands about that in Exodus, the 26th chapter, verses 31 through 33. This is originally concerning the tabernacle, but it morphs into the temple a little bit later in history. Notice that God says, you shall make a veil of blue, purple, and scarlet yarns of fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. Well, what was the significance of the most holy place? The most holy place was the location where God's presence dwelt during the Old Testament time. As we just read, the most holy place is where the Ark of the Covenant lived. It's where the Ark of the Covenant stayed. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant contained various things inside of it. On top of it was the mercy seat. On either side of it was cherubim with the wings meeting in the center above the mercy seat. Notice in 21, he says of Exodus chapter 25, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the Ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. Here's the significance of the most holy place. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. The most holy place is where the presence of God dwelt during the Old Testament time. This is where God met with His people whenever it came to Aaron the high priest. This is where God gave His commands. This is where God spoke with the people of Israel. And perhaps you know when you read scriptures like Leviticus 16 or Hebrews 9 verses 6 and 7, there was only one person who was allowed behind the curtain, behind the veil, into the most holy place, and he was only allowed to go in there how often? One time a year. It's the high priest on the Day of Atonement. He would go behind the curtain into the presence of God in the most holy place in order to provide an offering not only for his own sins, but also for the sins of the people. What happened whenever Jesus died? Whenever Jesus breathed his last breath and let out that final cry, what took place in verse 38? Mark tells us, as we read just a few moments ago, that the curtain, this veil that we've been talking about, that separated the holy place from the most holy place, was torn in two. He tells us it was torn from the top down to the bottom. What's the symbolism of that? What's the significance of this curtain being torn in two parts, being split right down the middle? We said one time a year, one person would get to enter into the fullness of God. He'd enter behind the curtain into the most holy place. I believe the splitting of this curtain, the splitting of this veil in verse 38 following the death of Jesus is all about that word that you see up on the screen. It's all about having access to God. Now the access of God, access to God, access to God's presence is opened up to everybody. It's not just one person, one time a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement, but now the curtain has been split in two, 
and the presence of God is open to every person at all times through the sacrifice of Jesus. I mean, the New Testament teaches us that, doesn't it? In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, what? To enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. Romans chapter 5 and verse 2 says that it's through Jesus we've obtained what? We've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Or Ephesians 2 and verse number 18. It's through Jesus that we both, in context, he's talking about both Jew and Gentile, everybody in the entire world. It's through Jesus that we both have access in one spirit to the Father Whenever we stand at the foot of Jesus' cross, I believe that we learn a lesson about having access to God. Now, through Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, through the sacrifice of Jesus, every person is able to enter into the fullness of God's presence at any time that they choose. If you were able to meet one person tonight, who would that person be? Maybe it's a celebrity musician, actor, politician, the list could go on and on. If you could meet one person tonight after services, who would that person be? You thinking of the name? You thinking of the face? What if I were to tell you that after services were over, I could take you to that person and y'all are going to go out to eat and spend some time together, spend some time talking, spend the rest of the evening together. Would you take hold of that opportunity? Would that be something special to you? Would that be something you'd be excited about? I can't promise that to you this evening. I'm, I'm not going to make empty promises up here. But I can promise you this. We have access to a being who's a whole lot greater than any person that just crossed your mind. And we have access to that being, omniscient, omnipotent creator of the universe, at any time that we choose. Because of Jesus. It's through the death of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus that we are able to enter with boldness and confidence into the very presence of God anytime we want to. Do, do we take advantage of that? Is that something that we're excited about? As we live our lives on a weekly basis, do we take the time, are we intentional about stepping into and living and experiencing the presence of God? I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes I struggle with that. I have access to the presence of the creator of the universe, the one who has saved my soul, and some days I go without even talking to him. What about you? Some days I go with, without thinking about it, without taking advantage of that access that I have. When we stand at the foot of the cross, we learn to do better. When we stand at the foot of the cross, we learn to repent from that kind of lifestyle. And we learn to have intentionality, to live our lives accessing the presence of God that's been offered to us through the sacrifice of Jesus. And then finally, number six, there, there's a lot more lessons that we could learn from the cross. But just looking at Mark's account here, whenever we stand at the foot of Jesus's cross, we learn something about response. When you look at verses 39 through 41, also the parallel passages in Matthew, Luke and John, everybody standing at the foot of Jesus's cross has some kind of response to Jesus Specifically when it comes to the way that he died. We first see a Roman centurion in verse number 39. 
A centurion was a Roman soldier who was put in command or in charge of 100 other Roman soldiers. This man would have been a pagan. This was not a religious individual at all. In fact, whenever you go to Luke's account in chapter 23, verses 36 and 37, when Jesus was originally hung on the cross, the Roman soldiers were mocking him and making fun of him. Who do you think they were led by? More than likely, that mocking was led by the centurion, the one who would have been in charge of them. Well, when you come to Mark chapter 15 and verse 39, it seems that this centurion has a change of heart. As he watches what happens as Jesus hangs on the cross for six hours, and specifically in verse 39, when he saw the way that Jesus breathed his last breath, what did he say? What was his response? Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now there's a lot of debate and there's a lot of conversation surrounding exactly what the centurion meant by those words. He's probably not referring to Jesus as the Son of God as we would refer to Jesus as the Son of God. This phrase, Son of God, was oftentimes used by pagans to refer to rulers or people in authority, people who were very significant or important during their time, to call them the Son of a God, that they have this exalted position. More than likely, that's what he's meaning. But I think Mark is pointing out to us here that this Roman centurion is speaking better than he knows. Because Jesus is the Son of God. And when we stand at the foot of Jesus' cross, that's the conclusion that we have to walk away with. That's the response that we should have. Truly, not this man was. Remember, the resurrection hasn't happened yet. But this man is the Son of God. What about the women that we read about in verse 40 and in verse 41? These are women, according to verse 41, that followed Jesus while he was in Galilee, and they ministered to Jesus. They served Jesus. So often we talk about Jesus serving and ministering to people. Here are women who were serving and ministering directly to Jesus, who made a tremendous difference. One of the ways that they served Jesus, according to Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, is after they were healed of evil spirits and infirmities in verse 2, then you find several of the women listed at the end of verse number 3. They provided for Jesus and disciples out of their means. The way that they served Jesus, one of the ways that they ministered to Jesus, was by taking their own money and supporting Jesus' ministry. They made a tremendous difference. Just a side note, I think this speaks to our ladies, don't you? Ladies, never convince yourself or don't let anybody else convince you that you can't make a difference for the Lord. Here are women in Mark chapter 15 verses 40 and 41 who made a tremendous difference for the Lord. While he was in Galilee, they served him, they ministered to him, they followed him. They're standing at the foot of his cross when the vast majority of Jesus' disciples are nowhere to be found. Remember, they fled when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now only John, we find in the Gospel of John, only the Apostle John is, is the one who's at the foot of Jesus' cross. The, these women made a tremendous difference. Don't ever be deceived into thinking that you can't make a difference for Jesus. Now, we know that there are functional differences between men and women when it comes to the church, when it comes to the home, but don't be deceived into thinking that you can't minister to the Lord, that you can't serve the Lord in amazing and phenomenal ways. We find the ladies 
who are at the foot of Jesus' cross mentioned by name, don't we? In Mark chapter 15 and verse number 40, that they were looking on from a distance. Mary Magdalene was present. That's one of the ladies that we saw a slide back in Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, who Jesus healed. She served Jesus by providing for His ministry out of her means. We find Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph standing there. That's all that we really know about her. But then there was also Salome, who we believe was more than likely the mother of James and John, the apostles, the wife of Zebedee. We go to John chapter 19 and verse number 25. We find that there were other women standing at the foot of the cross, including Jesus' mother, Mary. Can you imagine the response that they would have had to this? Especially Jesus' mother as they look up and see Him hanging on the cross, suffering, struggling for every breath, beaten and bloody, and then as He takes His final breath. Can you see them crying with one another? Can you see them mourning? Here we have two examples of something that I think was universal whenever it came to those who witnessed the death of Jesus. Everybody responded in some kind of way. The cross of Jesus demanded a response and each person gave that in their own way. If we're going to learn a lesson from the cross, after looking at all of these five other lessons that we've seen over the last two weeks, we have to recognize that the cross of Jesus demands a response. As you live your life tomorrow, as you live your life throughout the rest of this week, how are you going to respond to the cross of Jesus? Recognizing that ultimately He did this for you and me. That He bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 1 Peter 2 and 24. He who knew no sin became sin for us, for you and me, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. When you stand at the foot of Jesus' cross and you recognize that you're the reason that He's there, how are you going to respond to that this week? What kind of difference is that going to make in your life this week? Is it going to be something that causes you to love the Lord more, to appreciate Him more, to live with more dedication and faithfulness? Or is it something that's going to be shoved behind you and put on the back burner? Lessons from the cross. As we said, there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from the cross. And we could spend probably the rest of the year on Sunday nights talking about those lessons But when we look at Mark 15, verses 24 through 41, I think we see six lessons that are particularly powerful and helpful. Lessons about forgiveness. Lessons about judgment. A lesson about feeling abandoned by God. A lesson about trust, having access to God. A lesson about how we should respond to the cross of our Lord. I remember hearing a preacher one time he was telling a story that he had heard from another preacher. Sometimes these stories get passed down, but I I think that this one is true. This is not just a preacher story. He said that there was a preacher who one Sunday morning was going into great detail about the suffering of Jesus. He was walking through exactly what that looked like and talking about the suffering of Jesus very vividly, kind of like we did a few weeks ago. He talked about what crucifixion looked like. And as he looked out into the audience, there was a 12-year-old boy who was hearing and understanding these details for the very first time. The way the story goes, the little boy started to cry. The preacher could see it from standing behind the pulpit. And as he continued through the lesson, the boy started to get louder and louder and louder. 
He started to cry harder and harder to the point that he was sobbing. There were people turning around and looking to see what, what in the world is going on behind me. You, you know what his mother did? His mother was sitting in the pew next to him, slid over just a little bit, elbowed her 12-year-old son and said, Now, boy, don't, don't take that so seriously. That's nothing to cry about. Don't, don't take that so seriously. My hope and my prayer is that when we stand at the foot of Jesus' cross, we will take these lessons seriously. Can we help you to do that tonight? If we can, allow us that opportunity as together we stand and sing.